I talked to Carrie Coon, the breakout star of HBO's The Leftovers, and can watching television increase your emotional intelligence? Stay tuned. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Okay, what if I said there was a surefire way to make you stop feeling guilty about those HBO binges? Well, here it is. A new study has found that watching high-quality television dramas like Mad Men or Lost can actually increase your emotional intelligence. Later in the show, I talk to the author of that study, psychologist Dr. Jennifer Barnes. But first, last season I got hooked on HBO's unflinching drama The Leftovers, and now in season two, which started in October, it has me convinced that it's a real masterpiece. The series is co-created by Lost's Damon Lindelof and the author of the novel The Leftovers, Tom Parada. Season one began with the sudden departure, a random, never-explained disappearance of 2% of the entire Earth's population. The book and the series really take on the effects and catastrophe for those left behind. The grief, the survivor's guilt, turning to religion, to cults, who remains standing and why. One of the characters is Nora Durst. Her two children and husband disappear from the breakfast table as Nora's at the kitchen sink with her back turned. In just a few seconds, her life and family gone without explanation. I was transfixed by the actor playing Nora, this remarkable performance bringing to life one of the most complex characters on television right now. A straightforward performance of grief, aggression, liberation, all mixed into one. And then a few months later, watching David Fincher's Gone Girl, there she was again, playing Ben Affleck's twin sister in another story with complex female characters and giving another amazing performance. The actor is Carrie Coon, and she's one hell of a talent. A longtime theater actor, she was nominated for a Tony for her role in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 2012. And in 2014, she exploded on the scene to a wider audience in Gone Girl and The Leftovers. Now in season two of The Leftovers, we see Carrie as Nora Durst, but not in the original town of Mapleton anymore, but in Jarden, Texas, a small town nicknamed Miracle because it's not lost a single person to the sudden departure. Masses of people, all religions and experiences, seeking solace and maybe protection are migrating to Miracle, including Nora Durst, who is now together with police chief Kevin Garvey, played by Justin Thoreau, his teenage daughter, and a baby they found on his doorstep. I love this town. Now, everywhere I look, all I see is what's gone. I can sit around and cry about how the world ended, or I can start it up again. When I heard about this place, I'd be lying if I told you I understood it. But I understand it now. Is it real? It's real. What you're looking for is to feel safe. No safer here than anywhere else. She didn't come home last night. She was out with her friend. They're gone too. We came here because you said it was special. 
Miss Carrie Coon, thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought I'd start off with a little bit of a coincidence or kismet. A while back, I was really lucky to interview the legendary casting director, Ellen Lewis, here on the show. And oh, I love her. <laughs> and, and while I was working on that, um, I noticed that she and her office cast The Leftovers. And I remember thinking, yes, Carrie Coon, now that is perfect casting. And here you are. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and I thank Ellen Lewis for that. She was a real champion of mine when we met, and I'm grateful. What do you think she, why do you think she thought of you for The Leftovers? You know, I had just gotten to New York uh, that spring, or winter and spring, because we were doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway, the Steppenwolf Theater from Chicago. We had transferred a production, and she had seen it, because Ellen Lewis gets out and sees theater in New York, and that's how she sort of discovers actors. So when my agents called her to set a general meeting with her, she already knew who I was because she'd seen our show, which had been very critically well-received, but played to mostly half-houses because we're not, you know, J-Lo on Broadway. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, uh, we had a great general meeting. I think she brought me in just a couple of weeks later for The Leftovers. It was one of my, it was one of my first and only auditions for her while I was in New York. So she's a Chicago gal. You know, we're from Chicago and she's a... She's a Midwestern gal. I like her. Um, I went in. I went on tape for Meg and for Nora. I just went in and taped. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, great, we want you to come meet Damon Lindelof. And I thought, oh, I'll probably read with him. And But we just sat down and had a, a chat. I mean, Damon and I probably talked for half an hour. And then I expected that I would be uh, put through the ringer and that I would have to audition for HBO. Because normally you have to get approval from the network before you can get cast. And that never happened. I just got a call a couple of weeks after that offering me the part. And that was pretty amazing. It's not the story I had heard. It wasn't what I was expecting. Okay. That was it. Um, what What is Damon Lindelof's process with the actors? How much do you know week to week? The, we could say that season one ended where the novel ended. So you're now sort of on new ground. Right. Yes. No, we... we um, <laughs> We're kept largely in the dark. If there's something we feel we need to know for our process as actors, we can ask Damon, and he's very generous. He'll, he'll share with you. But he's not going to share anything beyond that, I think often because he's so responsive to what the actors are doing and to what we're bringing to the table that he's not exactly sure where he's going to take the story because it's often being massaged in certain directions based on what he's seeing in us, which is actually wonderfully collaborative and I don't think very typical of television. Oh, so he's changing week to week for you, sort of. He is a little bit. I mean, I think, I think it's more subconscious. I think he's just taking in information and that's what, and, and putting it into his magnificent brain and then, you know, whatever's coming out of him is somehow deeply connected to each of us, which is incredibly satisfying um, to do, to do that work. And I just don't think TV normally operates that way. But certainly the scripts are not written, you know, ahead of time. And, you know, we're often getting our scripts just a couple of days before we start shooting. So sometimes we don't know. Mm-hmm, it's about mm-hmm. to happen. You never know what's coming, you know. And talking about Damon, I really want to say congratulations to you, of course, for the amazing performance of Nora, but also to Linda Love and, and, and Tom Perrone and several of the amazing directors like Mimi Leader for making such complex female characters on this show that maybe people aren't talking about so much. I Not just Nora, but Amy Brenneman's character and Regina King and Anne Dowd. There's some special writing for women here, would you say? I, I completely, I, I completely agree. I mean, that was the appeal. You know, even when I knew that The Leftovers was just the scope of Tom's book, I was already interested in Nora. 
she was already a very fascinating character that Tom Parada had written, but but man, I, I, the scripts I read are mostly um, supportive girlfriends, nagging wives, and lesbian detectives, you know, <laughs> that are tough on the outside, but very vulnerable. And I read the same tropes over and over and over again in scripts, and there's just nothing quite like this. And we're entering into a very interesting time on television for women. A lot of the Emmy winners were over 40. You know, we had some African-American women winning those awards for the first time. I mean, it's things are changing, and TV is pushing the envelope and hopefully is going to drive changes in, in the film world as well. But, no, it's it's an incredible privilege to be working on something that, that demands so much of me. Because that's what I, I, whenever I read a script, I, I discover that it's just not asking me to do anything. And I'm not going to say yes to that thing. I want to be challenged just like any actor does. <laughs> it's like they don't want to, it's like they don't ask women to do much, you know. Now, this series takes some brain power. I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity. But even the the start of season two, um, which was an amazing sort of powerful motherhood um, thing. I mean, Terrence Malick-esque type start at it. Do you see that the, the show is a lot sort of about motherhood and women or that there's a strong theme there? Oh, that's interesting. I think it is about elemental things and timeless things. And it's about spirituality. And, of course, all of the earlier... Uh, cultures that preceded Christianity were mostly female-centric. The the woman's power of reproduction was the center of the spiritual life in a community, and that was just before we discovered things like possession and <laughs> um, territory, you know. And so I believe that inevitably, if you're dealing with spirituality and sort of the root of that, you inevitably find yourself dealing with the maternal and, and motherhood and motherhood and therefore earthy. Um, beginnings of, of things. And I think Damon's very deeply respectful and connected to that. And yes, I think you're right. I think it's absolutely in there. Definitely. Because, um, I mean, everyone's trying to analyze that beginning. I'll just say if, if someone <laughs> hasn't started yet, it's basically a, a, an eight minute um, prehistoric woman giving birth and some, something very tragic happened. And then there's, we never get back to that little story again. So, so of course, it just sort of sets the tone. But I want to go I back. Don't get back there yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> there may be. You know, you may find that it's a, it's perhaps an oblique connection. But I think I think it's very thoughtful. There's nothing arbitrary about what they're up to. Well, as know? a mother, it made me cry the whole. <laughs> so oh, but anyway, that's wonderful. But talking about Nora a little bit, many can um, relate to her. Maybe not the getting shot by prostitutes in order to feel something, but the sort of soldiering on in grief that no one else is there to help you on sentimental type of thing. I can certainly respect that. What kind of reactions do you get to her? Oh, I mean, I, I do occasionally read about how people are responding to Nora. I never get recognized, so I very rarely have personal experiences with people um, who are watching the show. They just don't... Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, mean, I almost never get recognized in public, which is a blessing. <laughs> not that I would uh, not welcome that conversation, but, you know, I, I've seen people who go through that, and I think it seems very stressful. But um, I guess a few times uh, people seem to really respond to her fierceness and, and her practicality and her directness. I, I find her very, in some ways, shrewdly practical. And, and the fact that she even has a bit of a sense of humor in spite of what's going on. I think that's really important. I find that in life when 
things are challenging for me. My family certainly relies on a dark gallows humor to get through mm-hmm. a dark time. And I think there are hints of that in Nora that make her seem more realistic as like a person in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the theme of that resilience of, of humans capacity to endure is, is quite real. We see it all the time. We see communities or countries devastated by war or, um, freakish events, the loss of an airplane, you know, a terrorist attack, uh, unfortunately in America, school shootings all the time. Mm. And you see these communities continue to, um, to live and thrive and, and try to learn from that. And I think that's a very deeply human instinct. And, and Nora seems to, in the writing, embody that instinct a little bit. I think that maybe, maybe people are connecting on a very biological level <laughs> to that. I had cigarettes in here. Maybe you smoked them while you were out sleepwalking. Where'd you go? I woke up in a, uh, a drain pond. I crawled out, there was a car parked up on top, white Mercedes. It was empty. And I saw another car coming, and it was uh, John, the neighbor. My son was with him. I think my phone was probably up there. I'm gonna find it. I think I should tell the cops. Tell them what? You can say you don't remember anything before you woke up in the exact spot where our neighbor's daughter and her two friends disappeared from. And you were saying, you were talking a little bit about the collective grieving process that this show is is so much about. What has it taught you about um, grieving? Oh, I mean, I have never endured the kind of punishing event that um, Nora has gone through. I, I read the memoir of um, Sonali Darianagala, who lost her family in the tsunami. And she lost her parents, her two children, her husband. And that was the closest equivalent I could I could come up with. I don't have children myself. I've, I've been married to my husband for a couple of years, and we hope to have a family. But, you know, there's something about an actress who doesn't have kids trying to play a person who does that can be really tricky. <laughs> and I, I wanted to make sure I was honoring that um, very deep connection. And so reading her book, which is this spare, unstinting look at grieving and the insanity, really, that comes with it, and yet the this ability to survive it, uh, you know, even shocking oneself, you know, that one, that one can endure um, beyond the, tr- the kind of tragedy that she, she sort of experienced in her life. It's, it's, it was really, um, it's an extraordinary book. And I think that taught me more about, about grieving than any process of mine, you know, not being able to relate very personally. But I just think what I've learned is that it's highly personal and, and, it, and it's different for everyone. And that um, there, we shouldn't um, assume we know how someone else should do it. Has it taught you anything about how to behave around others grieving? You know, I, I don't know that it has. I, I Like I said, be, because it's so personal in some ways, then what what is expected of someone approaching a grieving person is to not really have any expectations for what that's going to be. Um, and certainly don't tell them to get over it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because I think a lot about Joan Didion's The Year of Magical um, Thinking that, mm. that you almost sort of are a little bit um, out of your mind for that first time when someone you yes. love so much is gone. And I see that a lot in the show. Um, 
has it made you understand anything about people joining sects or or religions or or people sort of searching for answers? I think as an actor, I believe one must believe as an actor that human beings are capable of anything because we are as actors invited to imagine ourselves doing all kinds of things. And you sort of, the, the baseline where you have to start from is that human beings can do anything and that any person you know is capable of the best or the worst impulse you can imagine. And if you're starting from that premise, then in some ways there are no surprises. And that what, what I guess I mean is that as an actor, you can't go into any story or any character with judgment. And so, or, or else I don't think you can play them very authentically. And so I think it's more just an extension of, of my, uh, my approach as, a, as an artist in the first place, you know, is not to judge those things. Because um, you can't play them. In season one, Nora's guilt that feels, and I know you've spoken of this before, there's a guilty feeling of a bit of liberation that she was a sort of housewife. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she doesn't have to be the housewife anymore. But now in season two, in the first um, few episodes that we've got to see, she's sort of starting this family again and going into a family with small children and everything. How do you think it's going to go for Nora? Well, I think what's interesting about playing Nora this season is that tension, that her obligations disappeared and she almost got away. And instead, she chose to reinvest in these roles that she had been playing, albeit in another iteration. And so I think that fight-or-flight response is still very strong in her. I think her awareness that she almost started over is, is part of what fuels her challenge in dealing with Kevin. Kevin, who's not able to show up for her in the way that she needs right now. She needs safety and security and stability. And Kevin is not the partner for that. And of course, Kevin and Nora don't know each other very well. They haven't been together that long. And and now they're embarking on this new sort of family unit and and journey together, and they actually are still learning each other, and that's very challenging. Um, it's very challenging. And again, Nora's all in. I mean, she's a hundred percent invested, but most certainly that's going to be tested by Kevin's particular uh, neuroses at this point in the story. And of course, the mysteries of miracle. Nora has this little alarm bell going off. She senses that all is not as it seems, but she can't put her finger on exactly what that is. And so she's kind of on high alert. At the same time, she's trying to pretend that she's quite comfortable and happy and and handling everything. You know, Nora's going to handle it. But one does feel that she will handle it. That's the, I mean, she needs love and someone, you know, touching her and everything. But one has this sort of feeling that she can... She can take care of that stability, but maybe it'll be interesting to see what she goes. <laughs> yeah, how that how that plays out. Yeah, I love that though that people feel that people feel when Nora comes into the room that someone's going to take care of things. I think that's great because I think that's a very empowering position as a woman and as a female character. That, that when that character comes on screen, instead of instability, you see capability. And I think that's one of the things people respond to in Nora. You, the, the, the playing of it and the writing of it is just an amazingly, I mean, and, and ambiguous. I don't think everyone loves her, but but that's the thing that's so sure. interesting about her and, and, and also that she's a woman and that she makes us feel that way when she comes in. No, no, very, very mm-hmm. well. 
Do you mind if I ask you a, a Fincher question? Sure, please. I know that he's a man of many of many takes. Um, was that a new experience for you coming from the theater? Well, everything. Yes. I mean, it was all new because I had never made a movie before. And my first movie was with David Fincher, which is a really intense crucible for learning that sort of thing. So, of course, for me, there was a tremendous benefit for me in doing multiple takes. I wanted as many takes as I could get. The thing about Fincher, and Fincher and I worked really well with the other. I really, really respect David, and I love David, because he's a perfectionist. And I'm a perfectionist. And when you put two perfectionists together in a room, they're going to work together all day till they get it right. <laughs> and that was sort of our dynamic. You know, he could see that I was trying, and he wanted what he wanted, and we would work together to try to get to that place. And I, I really found that incredibly satisfying. And in addition to that, David also realized who he was getting, and that was somebody who was not entirely familiar with the vocabulary of film. And once he learned that um, he had to teach me a little bit, he oh, things went really smoothly from there. So he would actually say, Carrie, come here, look at this. You see the monitor? You see how I have this framed up? This is why I need you to glide out of frame on your right foot. You see what I'm doing? And I was like, oh, of course, yes. Now that I can connect what I'm doing with what, you, with what that vision is, I can execute it. And so, so I learned so much from David in that, about film and about, um, you know, process because he runs a very respectful set. And then after that, I moved right into the leftovers, you know, shooting the first season. And we were going so quickly that I just felt really primed and lubricated and re ready to go because, you know, because I had been at Fincher school for yeah. so long. <laughs> That's amazing. And I know, I mean, you've been working for years, but as for me as a viewer, that, 2014 was like, who is this person? This is amazing. And you just sort of shot out on the scene. I know you said that you you don't get recognized, which I'm sure you will soon. But but how is, has it changed your life radically from 2013 to 2015? I mean, in some ways, the biggest change is that I got married. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. But that year, thank you. I mean, that year, what really changed my life was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is the play I did in Chicago. They went to New York. They went to Broadway. And going to Broadway changed everything about my life because I was able to have access then to that TV film stuff that was happening in New York. I met my husband doing that play. Yes, he's in the play, and, right? Or he was in the play. Yes, he, he played George. His name is Tracy Lutz. He's a playwright and an actor, a remarkable actor who was who was playing George in our production of Who's Right Virginia Woolf. Amazing Bonnie. actor and screen and, and writer. Um, he's, he's kind of an extraordinary gentleman. I won't lie. And um, and so I, I got married and I, I booked this television show on HBO and I booked this David Fincher film. And I just can't imagine ever having a year in my life that will be like that ever again. It was kind of extraordinary. And I, I've been so, I'm so grateful for it. But really all it did was create opportunity for me. So I still have to fight for projects I want to do. I still have to audition for things. But at least I have a little bit of street cred going into those conversations with the kind of directors I want to work with and you know, I have I have great representatives who are helping me carve out and make the career I want to make. And that puts me in an incredibly privileged position as an actor. Mm -hmm. There are many, many love, wonderful actors I know in Chicago who just don't have the access I have and yet would be equally, um, you know, lauded and, and doing great work if they were if they were in the position that I'm in. And I recognize the privilege of that. But you've done some amazing performances and some really interesting roles. Do you have any new projects? 
I do. I'm actually working on an independent film right now with Holly Hunter, directed by Catherine Dietzman. Wow. And it's a great, it's a wonderful story. It's really about relationships and it's about women, but it's about this particular woman who's played by Holly Hunter, who's um, uh, lost her son to suicide and is sort of trying to understand the circumstances of that. And she's just, Holly Hunter's just a remarkable actor and I'm learning so much from her doing scenes with her has just been extraordinary for me. And then following that, I'm doing a big Blumhouse thriller with Lee Pace, who I, I also think is an incredible actor. And we have this great little story we're going to tell. Um, and uh, it, it's, it was Karen Moncrief, who's a, who's a lovely uh, actress turned director. So uh, I've got a great year plan. And then hopefully after that, I'm doing my husband's new play in Chicago, which is a... Ooh, what is that? It's, um, it's called Mary Page Marlowe. And it's the story of one woman's life, 11 scenes from her life. And she's an accountant from Ohio. And she's played by eight different actresses. Because, you know, my husband believes, looking back on his life, that he feels like he was a different person. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has this wonderful, it's a Joan Didion quote, actually, which oh. I would butcher if I try to paraphrase it, but I'm sure you could find it. And um, it's just the most beautiful play, and I, I'll, I'd do anything to be in it. So that's, I'm setting my sights on that for spring. Hopefully. That's amazing. I can imagine that the Coon Letts household, not a bad piece of writing, <laughs> passes by your door. <laughs> It's true. We're total snobs. We're total snobs about about writing and script, which is which is great. Well, as you should be. <laughs> but, and, we, but I admit it. I admit it. Well, as it should be. My husband's a screenwriter as well. I can tell you. So he's in, and he lo- loves your husband's work. But but that's great. Um, uh, before I leave you, just what what anything you can give us a little hint on on Nora coming up the last oh, episodes. <laughs> oh, you know. Oh. I can I can say that I think this I think the second season where it's headed is just unlike anything I've ever seen on TV, uh, regardless of of me in it. Um, I just I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of how bold it is and the questions it's asking. And though I can't say anything about what happens, I can say that next week's episode is is very heavy uh, with Nora and Regina King. Who's just it's just um, fierce. She's just amazing. So I hope people enjoy that because we get to we get to kind of. We get to kind of get after it a little bit. When Regina was cast, I was so hoping I was going to have a chance to, to work with her, and indeed, I have. So that's good. Um, Newly minted yeah, Emmy enjoy. winner. <laughs> I know. I was in a hotel room, when jumping and screaming and crying when she won. I was just so happy. And next year is your year, so she'll be jumping and screaming. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Thank we'll you see. so much. I won't Karen. count on. It, but <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you supporting the show. This is this is a lot of fun. Thank you, Carrie Coon. Don't miss The Leftovers. Season 2 is on HBO, HBO Nordic right now. A new study published in the journal Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts found that watching high-quality television dramas like Mad Men, The West Wing, or Lost can actually improve your emotional intelligence. I'm not kidding. Conducted by University of Oklahoma psychologist Dr. Jennifer Barnes, together with her graduate student Jessica Black, their work built upon another study that found that reading literary fiction makes us more emotionally intelligent. Their new study aimed to see if the same was true for award-winning television. And yes, they found that engaging in complex fictional narratives can increase a person's capacity for empathy, for example. I needed to go to the source to see if this was really true. 
Dr. Jennifer Barnes graduated from Yale with a degree in cognitive science and received a Fulbright to do autism research at the University of Cambridge in England. She recently completed her PhD in developmental psychology at Yale, and today she's a professor of psychology at Oklahoma University. She's the author of this new study titled Fiction and Social Cognition, the Effect of Viewing Award-Winning Television Dramas on Theory of Mind. Dr. Barnes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Is this really just an excuse for you to watch a lot of TV instead of working? Sometimes it is. I I have another graduate student who's working on a project right now that required her to spend about a month on Netflix looking for stimuli. Okay. So all the other graduate students were kind of jealous of her research work. Um, But honestly, I spend a lot of time watching television vision and reading books anyway. Um, So as a psychologist, you can study whatever you love. And I love stories in all mediums. And one thing I had noticed is that there was all this great work on written fiction and what it can do for us. But no one was asking those questions about other mediums. And as someone who spends a lot of my time on Netflix and DVRing shows and binge watching things, I really thought that these effects probably existed in other media as well. Tell me about the that other research part, the one about literature. Right. So that one was actually uh, started in large part by a guy named Dr. Raymond Marr. And he had shown correlationally, uh, so just measuring your past exposure to fictional books and your past exposure to nonfiction, and then looking at, say, your ability to read emotions or your empathy. And so he'd shown in many studies that prior exposure to fiction was correlated with higher ability to read emotions and higher empathy. Um, But what no one had done at that point was saying, is this just a correlation or is it actual causation? So you could imagine, for instance, that people who are already very empathetic might be very into literature. Because if you're high in empathy, you're interested in other people, you're interested in emotions, you care about these things. So you might be driven to books or movies or television shows in the first place. And that could explain this correlational result. So a research group, uh, Dr. Kid and Castano, uh, looked at whether if you just randomly assign people to read either literary fiction or nonfiction, or popular fiction, and then afterwards did this emotion reading test called the Reading the Mind in the Eyes test, would what you read, what would what you have read affect your performance on the test? And they found it did. Specifically, they found that if you had read an award-winning literary short story or the beginning of an award-winning novel, um, you performed higher on this test that requires you to read emotions. And you've all, you've chosen, you wanted to go and do this on TV shows, but why is this award-winning so important? Because you've also specified in the study award-winning TV. Uh, the reason we chose to start with award-winning fiction um, was that, A, that's what they'd found it for with literature, uh, and B, that the fact that these shows have very complex emotions and relationships. And to some degree, they make you work to understand these people. So it's not the kind of fiction where the characters are always telling you how they feel. They're not saying, you know, I'm so angry, I can't even look at you. You know, there's, it's all in the small moments, the expression on one of these characters' faces as they turn away. Um, They've got hard to understand relationships. So the idea is that When you watch a television show, when you read a book, some of the work is being done for you and some of the work you have to do yourself to figure things out. 
So one theory is basically the more work you require of the audience member, the harder the audience has to work to figure out what people are thinking and feeling and who they really are, um, the more you might be exercising this capacity called theory of mind. Which are the shows you chose? So we used four shows. So in our first experiment, we used Mad Men and West Wing. Uh, And in the second experiment, we used The Good Wife and Lost. And who and uh, who were some of the people that participated? How how did the study go? Um, so we ran this with our introductory psychology subject pool. So all of the participants were students enrolled in an intro psych class who for their class have to participate in some experiments. Um, so we get a lot of students signing up for our experiments because they have to choose between other psychology experiments and coming in and watching television for an hour. This was a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have to spend an hour doing a psychology experiment, spending 42 minutes of that hour watching an episode of Lost is not the worst way to spend your time. So they come in and and they watch this. And how are you actually testing them for emotional intelligence? So what we're actually testing, I would call it emotion reading ability, which would be one sort of subset of emotional intelligence, but not the whole category of emotional intelligence. So we use a test uh, created actually in the autism research literature called the reading the mind and the eyes test. And this is a test that has a bunch of pictures of people's faces, but only the eye region. So it shows you the eyes of a person, and then it's a multiple choice test. It'll list four uh, sort of emotional adjectives that the person might be feeling. So it asks you, are they distracted or flirtatious or concentrating? Um, And then you have to choose which of those emotions you think most aptly describes the eyes. Uh, And the reason we use this test is it's actually a fairly difficult test. There are relatively few tests where you can get these individual differences in adults because adults are actually really pretty good at reading emotions and understanding other people. Um, But when you just give them the eyes, what we see is some people are really good at intuiting what emotion goes with that facial expression, and some people find it a lot more difficult. So, and but before they um, looked at these eyes in this test and told you, they were asked to watch documentaries as well. Which were those? Right. So for documentaries, so we had Shark Week, How the Universe Works, uh, Nova, and um, Through the Wormhole. So these are, again, TV shows. Uh, usually that air on a weekly basis, but they were documentaries and specifically they were documentaries that didn't focus on people. So they focused on something other than people, such as an animal or a scientific concept. And were some of the group only watching the um, television shows and some of them watching the documentaries? Yes. So every person who came into the lab was assigned to watch only one episode of television. And the assignment was random. So you come in and we use a random number generator and you're either assigned to watch one of the fictional dramas. So either Mad Men or West Wing or one of the documentaries, uh, Shark Week or How the Universe Works. So everyone's just seen one episode of television. And so they watch that and then you give them the test. So, so what happened? So what we found was that people who had been randomly assigned to watch the fictional dramas. So you watched Mad Men, West Wing, The Good Wife, or Lost, performed significantly higher on the emotion reading test than people who had been assigned to watch the documentaries. Oh, how much more? How, how big was the difference? Um, you know, I would actually have to look. I think if it's on par with the reading literature, it's really only a difference of one or two questions, if that. 
So it's a statistically meaningful difference, meaning that you see the difference in a significant proportion of the people. And so you can say there's less than a 5% chance that this happened randomly. So there's a 95% chance that there's something systematic going on here. We found it twice, which means there's a very high chance that there's something systematic going on here. But in terms of real world effect, it's not like it's making you massively better at reading emotions. (laughs) It's just increasing performance by a little bit. But what's so amazing about this is that these people just watched one episode of television, right? So we know nothing about how much television they've watched in their lives up till now. They start with vast individual differences. So even if you just brought people into the lab, they watch nothing. Some people are going to score very highly on this test. Some people are going to score lower. So the fact that the group on the whole is scoring higher at all um, after watching just in one case, it was 26 minutes of a television show. In the other case, it was an entire episode. Uh, is really quite remarkable. Why? Why do you think this is? What is it in the television compared to the documentary? I think there are a couple different things that could be going on here with this one-time exposure. One thing that could be going on is that watching these television shows with people and complex relationships and emotions might basically just throw you into people mode. So it might be that we all have a certain expertise about thinking about people and relationships and emotions. And after you've spent some time watching television, you're very in tune with that. So it might not be that you're actually in 42 minutes learning something. It might be that that capacity was in there, but watching television is kind of activating it. Were you surprised at this one? I was not terribly surprised at this one because as a TV watcher, I thought that we would probably get the effect. And yet this is an effect that did surprise a lot of other people who didn't necessarily think that this would work with television. All of our parents who have told us to turn <laughs> off the television <laughs> right. were surprised. <laughs> and, you know, there, there were theoretical reasons to think maybe Maybe it wouldn't work. So when you read something, you have to do a lot of imaginative work. So you have to imagine the expressions on people's faces. You have to visually create things yourself. You have to read between the lines. So there's a little more imaginative work going on when you're reading something. When you're watching something, it's right there in front of you. It much more resembles reality than reading a book does. So there are some people who thought that extra imaginative work was what was doing the basically the work of making you better at reading emotions in written fiction. Um, so to some people, it was really surprising that the TV results would work. Uh, it wasn't terribly surprising to me because, again, I spend a lot of time watching television and a lot of time reading books. And I can see the parallels because at the end of the day, they're stories. They're about people and relationships and emotions. And I feel like we're driven to them for very similar reasons. I got really interested in something I I read that you had written about fictional morality. What is that? Oh, so this is an area we're researching um, that basically looks at the idea that there may be some key ways in which fictional morality is different from real world morality. Um, So take the domain of television and look at some of the characters and shows that are very popular these days. So you might hear something like House of Cards or Breaking Bad. And these aren't necessarily about people who are shining examples of humanity, who make the right choices. Um, So, you know, we're in an era not just of anti-heroes, but of heroes who actually sometimes do these horrible things. Um, And so the question is, is a fictional bad act as bad as a real bad act? Are there some things that if you put them in fiction 
are no longer bad? Are there some characters and archetypes that we find very appealing, but only as long as they aren't real? Ooh, what's the conclusion? <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, I got very into this question when I was in grad school, and I used to call it the Chuck Bass versus Spencer Pratt effect. <laughs> and uh, the reality show The Hills was on, and Spencer Pratt was kind of the antagonist jerk guy on that show. And the television show Gossip Girl was actually also on. So one day I went to Facebook and I typed in Chuck Bass, which is the name of the kind of jerk making bad decisions guy on Gossip Girl. And all the Facebook groups that came up were like, we love Chuck Bass. We're the Chuck Bass Appreciation uh, Society, like fans of Chuck Bass. You type in Spencer Pratt and everything that came up was like, we hate Spencer Pratt. Spencer Pratt made me throw up in my mouth. And they're all negative. Um, so there are many differences between those characters, uh, but you could actually make the argument that the fictional guy is actually way worse. He's actually done many worse things than some of the real guy. And yet in fiction, we kind of love him. So that's one area we're interested in. So we're just starting to do research. But and, that's okay. I mean, we're still yeah. sort of sane people for for loving um, for loving these the fictional, you know, Breaking Bad characters. <laughs> well, the thing is, when you love a fictional character, you don't have to worry that that fictional character is going to go off and commit real murder. At worst, they're going to go off and commit fictional murder. So in fictional acts, no one is actually being hurt. People are just being fictionally hurt. But does it fill a need in us somehow to, to, to watch these uh, horror characters with these the bad morals? I mean, it might. We've got some other research that looks basically at individual differences. Because what you find is some people love these shows with these morally questionable characters. And other people just don't even want to watch them in the first place. So there are plenty of people out there who just say straight up, no Breaking Bad, no House of Cards. I just don't like watching fiction about people doing bad things. Uh, and for those people, it seems that even the fictional bad things make them feel very uncomfortable. So we've been doing some research looking at something called imaginative resistance, which is basically when we hit an imaginative stumbling block and actually tell a television show or a book, no, you got that wrong. And when it happens, it's usually in a moral case. So it's like the moral world of a book or a TV show is telling you that something is okay and you think it's not okay. So you think they're actually wrong. Uh, and the reason psychologists find this interesting is that we know that people can imagine all sorts of things. Like we can imagine that Hogwarts exists. We can imagine that the Hunger Games are happening. But if you ask us to imagine, even in a fictional world, that it's a good thing that the Hunger Games are happening, that, you know, rich people should kill children every year, even in a fictional world, people will say, no, that's not right. Is there some example that you can remember offhand where there's been like a moral outcry over something fictional like that? Well, there's always a moral outcry by someone over something fictional. Uh, so if you look through the news, as I often do, there's always someone boycotting some show. And I think it comes down to this fear that we might be infected by the morality of fictional characters, that by watching people do something that you think is bad, by watching a show that endorses a morality that's different from yours, you might somehow catch that morality. As a psychologist, do you think there's any truth to kids seeing too much violence or whatever that would be? I mean, there's been a lot of work on children and violence. Again, a lot of it's correlational. Um, and a lot of it's not as complex. I do think 
you know, there are a lot of open questions and there's a lot of research that suggests, yes, maybe there are some times when some fictional things can affect us in some ways. I think what gets undervalued is, you know, fiction's potential to change people's beliefs isn't just negative. So, for example, if you are watching a show and there is more diversity on that show than there is in your everyday life, there's psychology to suggest that we form relationships with fictional characters that are much like real world people. So in some sense, you can have fictional friends that, say, belong to a group that uh, maybe faces prejudice or bias or stereotyping in the real world. And there's this very real possibility that I uh, were hoping to research and lab further that maybe making fictional friends with people from these groups can really change real world prejudice, bias, and so on. Um, we do have evidence also that the people who are less least likely to want to engage with alternate moralities in fiction, so the ones who don't want the characters who are doing bad things, the ones who don't want to be confronted with moralities other than their own, are also the people who rate highest on um, disgust sensitivity in a domain of morality called purity. So uh, again, we think it has to do with at least the fear of moral contagion. So we don't have evidence about whether you actually can be morally contaminated or have your morality pushed around by fiction. Um, but the people who are least likely to engage are the ones who are most afraid that that might happen. I love that. We have to write a TV show about moral contamination, <laughs> like a right. zombie thing, but <laughs> with sort of housewives being. Um, and just lastly, I just want to ask a little bit about your fascinating autism research. Um, have you studied sort of autism in correlation with fiction and narrative? Or I have. So I've done a couple of studies. Um, so I did one study where I was just interested in comparing children and adults and adults on the autism spectrum uh, in terms of what kinds of stories they find most appealing. And for this one, we manipulated two variables. One was fictionality. So fiction or nonfiction. Did it really happen or is it make-believe? Uh, and the other was the subject either about people or about objects. So you had nonfiction about people, nonfiction about objects, fiction about people, and fiction about objects. Uh, and what we found is that neurotypical adults um, don't care if something is fiction or nonfiction as long as it's about people. So they won't go based on the label. They're going based on the content of the story, and they want the content to be social. Um, people with autism show the opposite effect. So they're significantly preferring true stories over ones that aren't true. But that actually seems to be driven primarily by a liking for nonfiction about objects. So a significant proportion of them ranked as their first choice in encyclopedia entry um, over a fictional story or a nonfiction story of any type. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Burns. This was great. Thanks, Christina. Thank you so much, Dr. Barnes, and thank you to Carrie Kuhn from HBO's The Leftovers. And thank you guys for your feedback and for your tweets about where you're listening from. Last week, we got from Umyo from England, from New York City. Um, please send us more at the Twitter handle at podpopculture. Get more info on the homepage popcultureconfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself, Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening.
Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. 